Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. This is Annie here flying solo. Lalitha's gone off into the ether with the uh, beautiful sun that's beginning to arrive. And uh, today we've got an action-packed program. We've got uh, lots of things to bring to your breakfast table. Uh, We're going to uh, go to the Peter Norman Day celebrations that was held on the 9th of October down at uh, the Human Rights Square. In Melbourne, uh, Peter Norman, of course, was the uh, silver medalist who stood on the uh, podium in 1968 at the Mexican uh, Olympics uh, in support of the uh, two other athletes who uh, put their hands up uh, in the Black Panther salute, which caused so much uh, trouble to uh, the uh, sleep of the establishment. Uh, we're also going to uh, go to uh, Humphrey McQueen. We're going to, uh, he's going to continue the discussion about the uh, importance of the no vote. This, this is the anniversary week of the 1916 no vote, uh, no to conscription. What, what does it say about the class struggle? But also uh, uh, Humphrey, of course, is going to put his slant his interesting and provocative uh, understanding of uh, the uh, role that uh, war plays uh, in uh, maintenance of the uh, um, what he calls, I'd have to say, the monopoly of violence. Fantastic terms he brings out. And uh, we're also going to uh, revisit the S11 demonstrations in 2000 as part of the... Uh, Radical Radio 40 Years Celebration. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. 
Yes, that's right. And uh, let's go straight ahead to our little uh, review of what happened on the uh, Peter Norman Day celebrations uh, the 9th of October and uh, down at Human Rights Square. There's Cuesta. It's a good start. And Carlos, as usual, has burst out of the blocks. Tommy Smith running pretty well so far. And in lane two, Bombuk is strong on the outside. It's Edwin Roberts. It's John Carlos right now. It's Carlos and Smith. And here comes Tommy Smith. The Olympic Games are one week old today, and yesterday, the sixth day, was the most dramatic so far. It started with the news that the Black Power disciples Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Olympic 200 meters gold and bronze medalists, had been suspended by the United States Olympic Committee and given 48 hours to leave Mexico. I had said that if there were any demonstrations at the Olympic Games by anyone, the participants would be sent home. Do you think the Olympic Games are the right place to do this kind of thing? You ought to use this as a kind of world stage? David, since we are athletes, although I am a teacher, but I'm not a politician, uh, we use this so the whole world could see the poverty of the black man in America. At the same time, cynics might say that you've got it all. You've got publicity, you've got medals, you've always got martyrdom as well. What are you going to say to that? I can't eat that. And the kids around my block, they grew up with me, they can't eat it. And the kids that's going to grow up after them, they can't eat it. Publicity, they can't eat gold medals, as Tommy Smith said. All we ask for is equal chance to be a human being. And as far as I see now, we're five steps below the ladder. And every time we try and touch the ladder, they put their foot on our hands and don't want us to climb up. Peter Norman achieved something that no other Australian has managed. In the 200 metres event, He recorded a time which has never been equaled, let alone beaten, by any Australian. And that was even more remarkable when you consider where it was performed. It was in the rarefied atmosphere of Mexico City. And as one who has um, travelled in and through Mexico City, I can vouch for the fact that the air is rarefied. And yet, with that disadvantage, Peter still achieved a time that no Australian has been able to equal, let alone exceed. When he was blacklisted for the 72 Olympics in Munich, Australia had no sprinters at all in the Games. And in 76, where Australia did not get a gold medal at all, the Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, decided it was such a national disgrace that he'd have to inject a lot of money into sport through the Australian Institute of Sport. And yet his treatment or his acquiescence in the treatment of Peter Norman was there for, for all to see. And in America, they commemorate Peter Norman Day. Here, Peter was blacklisted even 32 years after the event when he was not allowed not invited even by the Australian Olympic officials to the Olympic Games in Sydney, the American track and field people uh, invited him as their special guest for his funeral, uh, the gold medalist Tommy Smith and the bronze medalist uh, John Carlos came out here and they were pallbearers for the funeral. Peter, I hope, will be remembered 
fondly in due course in this country. I remember when he gave one of his rare interviews, and there's nothing, nothing wrong with being a private person, he said he was so disgusted with the way he'd been treated that he abandoned athletics and played football instead. What we're actually doing is um, bringing about an opportunity to actually bring a statue here of Peter, finally. We don't know yet. Yeah. And this, and this particular statue is the same one that's in the Smithsonian? Well, that's, that's what we're looking at now. It's either we, we get the moulds for that or we do it ourselves. Okay. And Coburg would be the perfect place, wouldn't it? Um, no, we're actually hoping city, in the city, absolutely in the city. We want somewhere where people can meet, protest, peacefully, obviously, something that actually represents what Peter stood for. Maybe the human rights square here. Absolutely, I would love it here. This would be fantastic. Here, the MCG, somewhere sporting if necessary. There a patch about Peter Norman Day, trying to get it to be a public holiday, but it just shows him. It's been cartoonised and it's a great graphic. Who are you? We have media, I'm afraid, 3CR. First of all, where's Ellen? Ellen, uh, an elder from Murr, from the Torres Strait. I'll ask Ellen just to make a short acknowledgement to country, to the uh, Kulin nation on whose land we are. I'd like to respect the Kulin nation and the people who live by the river, who used to live by the river, I'm sorry. Um, we welcome you to this country and hope that you will respect the people's rules and regulations. Thank you for your support. Thank you, Alan. That's the formalities out of the way. The rest of it's informal. Look, uh, we've been doing this for uh, five years. This is our fifth year. It's always been very low-key. So I'd welcome you to the 10th anniversary. This is the 10th Peter Norman Day. Peter, his funeral was on the 9th of October 2006. You all know about Peter Norman. If you don't, uh, Matt Norman, his nephew and the uh, producer and uh, filmmaker for the film Salute is here as our special guest speaker and I'll introduce Matt in a few minutes. Uh, but more importantly, we are now in the process of beginning to set up a, a Peter Norman Day commemorative committee whose main task will be to ensure that a monument is erected to Peter. So in February this year, we'll have our first Peter Norman uh, uh, committee meeting. Now, I've asked Matt to be our patron. So who is Peter Norman? There are some very iconic images of the 20th century. And one of the most iconic images of the 20th century is three men on the dais 
at the Mexico Olympics in 1968. You've got two black men giving the black power salute and you've got this young white gentleman on the silver medal diocese who was Peter Norman, who was one of our own. He was born in Melbourne, an Australian. And Peter made a, a decision that day which affected the rest of his life. And on that day, he chose to support the struggle for universal human rights. He had a badge on which showed that and he supported the action the gold medalist and the silver medalist made on that day, that historic mention. Now they were punished, but people don't understand is that Mr Norman was also punished. I mean, it's extraordinary how the great people in this country's history are always forgotten, denigrated, misrepresented. And Peter Norman paid a huge price and some people say it actually uh, contributed to his uh, early death. But I would like to introduce uh, Mr. Matt Norman to come over. Thank you. Uh, firstly, um, thank you so much for actually uh, attending today. It's always really nice to know that Peter was supported and it's now 10 years to the day that we had his funeral in, in Williamstown. So um, for the past 10 years, I've literally spent those, that time um, trying to uh, put Peter's name back into history and that's that's been the most important part um, of the journey for me is after doing the film I didn't want to just make a film and then let it go it's been one of those things that I continually talk about to represent um, Peter and and who he stood for and what he stood for as being one of the most um, gracious things a man could do in his lifetime and and for that um, you know, what Peter has actually done has left a legacy to all of us to, to stand with him and beside him to do the same thing. One of the things that I discuss, especially at schools, is not necessarily um, the story about Peter Norman. You can go and read about um, Peter Norman in books. You can, you can watch the film and see Peter Norman in the film and listen to his story. But what I usually discuss, especially with young teenagers, the need for change and what Peter stood for. Now, a lot of people would say that Peter wore a, uh, a little badge in support, but we've got to understand that back in the 60s, it wasn't cool to stand up for the black man. Um, and he, he certainly um, knew that. And we all know that as Australians. It, it was a hard time back then with the white Australia policy taking hold and um, some of the serious racial issues that we actually had to deal with back in the time. The problem that we've got is that those racial attitudes continue today. And I think today what you are doing by actually coming here to, um, uh, to celebrate Peter Norman's life is the fact that you're, you've actually got a conscience. You actually know what he stood for and for the differences he stood for. And I really appreciate the fact that you're all here um, standing um, like Peter Norman did, wanting change and needing change so that we can all actually live in a society where we're together. And if the only thing you can do about it is share it on social media that things need to change or you see something, um, a petition or something like that online that you can say, look, I'll put my name to it. That's literally what Peter Norman um, did. He put his name to a cause and that cause was uh, he didn't believe um, what was happening to black America was right. And so he stood up and said, it's not right. 
So if, if we can all do that, um, that would go a long way in, um, in good change. And, and the fact that you're actually doing it today by just attending here and celebrating Peter Norman's life um, is a real honour for me to, to actually see um, so many friendly faces here. So thank you again, everyone, for coming. And thank you so much, Joseph, for inviting me. It's been, um, it's been wonderful to know that um, so many of you have come out to celebrate Peter Norman's life. So thank you. Now, those of you who have been involved in events that we've organised over the last 40 years in this city would know is what we like to do is we like to dem democratise uh, the event. So I'm going to send the microphone round and if you've got something to say, can you say it's about universal human rights today. It's about celebrating the life of a great Australian. Now, just one little aside. Those of you who are old enough will remember 2011 when the Occupy movement was occupying this this square and how that square was actually uh, vacated and uh, violently uh, the protesters were violently removed and at that stage uh, we rechristened this sacred ground from city square to human rights square so when you talk to your friends and wouldn't it be great if there is a statue to Peter Norman in human rights square Think about it. And the thing is, we are, you know, remember your little chemistry experiments at school? You'd put in a little drop of something into the test tube and it would froth all over. Well, we are that little drop. We are the catalyst for change. Each and every one of us is that catalyst for change. And although we think that change is impossible, change occurs sometimes violently sometimes incrementally over decades, and we are part of that movement. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, ask for people to come forward who want to speak. Maybe you could limit yourself to two or three minutes, introduce yourself to the crowd cause, and uh, say what you want to say. Who's first? No, no blushing violets, please. Hello, my name is Susanna Augustine. I don't have to say much. I'm a human just like you, and I stand for human beings. If my brother or sister is suffering, then I will be suffering and you will be suffering. So let's unite. Thank you. He said, my dad might be a bit upset with me seeing you. And I said, why? And he said, because you're white. And anyway, it transpired that his dad wasn't upset about him seeing me. He was very pleased about seeing me. And he said, he holds white people in high esteem because of a bloke called Peter Norman who stood in solidarity with him at the Olympics. His dad's Tommy Smith who won the Olympics that day. So for 30 years I've known about Peter Norman and he's had a massive effect on my life. I mean I'm looking at Pierre now there who's part of a group that I'm activist in and for you know for years I believe in human rights, I believe in solidarity. What Peter Norman did that day was was fabulous. It was brilliant. And it, it was about us standing together. You look at what happened in Germany. You look at how people take over, how wars are started, because people do nothing. People don't stand with people. We need to stand together. No matter what colour you are, it's about oppression, and you stand together. Anyway, so Tommy Smith knows what's going on today, so I said I'd send him some photos. Thank you. My name is Pierre, and I came here about 40, oh, 42 years ago. Just want to make a point that here in Australia, when I came and I went to school, I was 10, 
I went to school, and our history was all about Captain Cook. He came and discovered this empty land. So when I actually went to school, I didn't know anything about Aboriginals or even about racism. It's only when I grew up that I actually understood what's going on in, in this country. And I think it beholdens to all of us, not only to stand in support and in solidarity with each other, but the fact that in this country, we have to remember that there is the original crime here of dispossession, of attempted genocide, that there hasn't been no justice yet. And I think as, a, as an anti-racist labor activist for many, many years, what I, I think I've come to really find out is whenever people are talking about racism and about equality here, until we resolve the issue of Aboriginal people, the issue of the fact that we dispossess their country, we attempted genocide against them. We will not solve all these other issues. That is the first issue that we all need to resolve for them and our sake as well in solidarity. Thank you. Hello. Um, I can't actually believe I'm standing here and saying something. Um, my name's Emma Norman and my dad is Peter Norman and I'm here with my sister. I just want to say um, that it would mean beyond the well to my dad to see that each of you have come out today. Um, he was, you know, one of the most humble people I know and it would just mean beyond the world to him to see each and every one of you here. So I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you very much. That's a, I'm really, makes me very happy to think that Peter Norman had a daughter like you and you too. Yeah, yeah. Because the end of the uh, flyer says he, he died a disillusioned man. And that's terribly sad. Uh, the, the heavy repressive hand of the state coming down so hard back there in 1968 on someone who made a move that you would think would be acclaimed. You would think he would come back to Australia and be praised for being a brave and honourable man. But he gets a whole lifetime of disrespect going right up to the top. The, uh, the media, the politics, anyone who has a say about what goes out had obviously put the fix in on Peter Norman. And uh, I'm uh, really moved that his family have got the, the grace and the courage and the strength to keep fighting for his name and that all of you people here are not going to forget this issue. And another thing I think we should not forget, uh, we should never let our guard down. The, the powers that repressed Peter Norman and tried to silence his deed and his name are still there. They're stronger than ever. They're more organised than ever. They're more vicious than ever. You've all told stories about what's happened in Dondale and what's happened in other places. We know that. They're hideous stories and there's more and more of them. Uh, a final note, uh, we all put shit on America very easily. And someone somewhere says about America, the cradle of the best and the worst. Now, at the moment, in America, as a rea reaction to the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, at the football matches, some of the players when the national anthem is played, the Star Spangled Banner, don't stand up. But they don't sit down either. They kneel. 
and that's, that's a big public gesture of the people, of the sportsmen, sportsmen like Peter Norman, who are prepared to stand up in public and say, this is not good enough. This is not the country or the society we want. Okay, well, I've said enough. Anyone else? When I was about 15 years old, I was subject to some pretty harsh racism, which made me to quit football. I stuck with basketball. I also happened to go pretty far in athletics. And when I was 17 years old, I carried a, that, that very image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos and, and Peter Norman at, at, at the 1986 Olympics in the inside of my journal. Um, the end of that year, I ended up winning the Pierre de Coubertin Award, who was the founder of the modern Olympics. And um, after, yeah, I was, I was presented the award. And then a couple of years later, my mother took me to see the Salute documentary, produced by Matt Norman. And me and my mother were driving home from that movie, and we were just thinking to ourselves, where do we know this face from? And then my, my, my mother and I both clicked at the same moment, and we realized that Peter Norman had presented me that Pierre de Coubertin Award, and we still have that photo today. And... Um, I, I'm very grateful for everything Peter Norman's done. I, in my opinion, he's the, the, one of the greatest Australians who ever lived. And I would love to see a Peter Norman Day. I'd love to see a Peter Mo Norman Memorial. And I'm very appreciative to the family for keeping his legacy going. So thank you. Look, if anybody else has got a personal observation, if not, that's it. That's a wrap. All right, it's a wrap. Thank you very much. And that was uh, the Peter Norman Day at uh, Human Rights Square, 9th of October this year. It will grow and grow and grow. But on uh, now we're going to move on to a uh, thing that happened just yesterday. We've got uh, Shane Howard on the line, and uh, he's Shane. Are you there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness, I should wake up a bit earlier and do a few blocks so that I'm actually How awake. Are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Except that I'm you, a bit beery, yeah. Yeah, you, you've uh, you've had to uh, go down to Kalani Beach and uh, do a standoff with the racehorses. This is a, a different side to the Melbourne Cup, isn't it? Well, it is, Eddie. Um, look, yeah, around this district here, you know, uh, we've always had a, a couple of people who've had a few racehorses, you know, and. Yeah, they'd bring them down for a restorative work and put them in the water and swim them. Um, very low impact, you know, no one really minded. There wasn't too much going on. But in the last 18 months, two years, we've seen an escalation, an exponential escalation of that. It's essentially Darren Weir won the Melbourne Cup. Um, he went, then went on the media and said, you know, he credited his success with... Um, Trading the horses on Kalani Beach and riding them in the dunes, and oh, no. and so every man his dog then started bringing their horses onto the, our beaches down here, and it got, it's it's just escalated beyond what the beach can handle. It's now you know we're up to a hundred horses a, a day at times at the peak, eighty to hundred horses, and um, the impact. We, we this is the biggest. This beach is home to. Um, or the Belfast Coastal Reserve, which runs Port Ferry to Waterball. Uh, it's home to uh, the little hooded plover, and now there are less than 600 hooded plovers left in Victoria, and we have 10% uh, of those on our beaches in a 20-kilometre strip from Port Ferry to Waterball. That's not many. It's only you know, 50 or 60 little birds. Now, in the last 12 months from the impact... Um, 
50% of those birds, the breeding cycles have failed. Their, their nests have failed. Their mm. eggs have failed. Um, so, you know, we're looking at a massive impact on uh, a, a bird that is threatened, uh, could, well, as registered as vulnerable to extinction. But it's um, also, I mean, the the Kalani Beach, I don't know if any uh, listeners realise, but Kalani Beach is one of the most beautiful places, peaceful places. The idea of a hundred uh, racehorses being, uh, I don't know, people have actually seen what they do because they run along the beach. They also take them out into the water with uh, rowboats and it must be like uh, Flinders Street Station. Well, um, it's more dangerous than that. Yeah. Uh, you've got a 500 kilogram animal travelling at pace, at speed, uh, and, and numbers of them, and this is right beside a camping ground. Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, public safety is a major issue, Annie. And, you know, we fear for, you know, there's lots of people anecdotally, local people, you know, and, you know, I mean, look, we're not anti horse racing. Good luck to everyone. Um, that, that's not the issue. The issue here is about public safety. It's about the protecting the little hooded plover and the environmental degradation. Of, you know, 500 kilogram animal, it does before legs. It chops up the, the sand. It makes an enormous impact. There's a complex ecology going on within the sand. And in terms of tourism, I mean, people come to this region. Port Ferry was the most livable town in a few years ago in the world. Um, so it's pristine beaches. And you, you know, we're looking at a situation where the sport of kings could destroy the jewel and the crown. So they don't, even, they don't even pick up their horse poo? I thought there was money in manure. No, they don't. It, it's um, there's a sort of look. There's, there's a, a disregard for. Uh, we think we feel at a local level. We think, um, and and people have been here for many generations. You know, five, six generations. Um, there's a bit of a disregard for local sensitivities and sensibilities. We very we love this place. You know, all the local people here. They know it, they love it, they preserve it, they protect it. You and went down there yesterday did. morning, didn't you? Mm, what happened? Did. And we blockaded, well, we blockaded the entrance to the beach so the trainers couldn't come in and unload their horses and get on the beach. And you know, Eddie, for the first day in about 18 months, there were no horse prints, horse prints on, on the Clyde Beach. So it was left alone for one day, the first day in probably 18 months. Oh, God. That's just incredible. Uh, where does this go now? What's going to happen? You're um, going to win, of course. Say, well, we 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 have to win um, because there, there are sites here of uh, indigenous cultural significance, very powerful sites. Um, there are aerial areas. There are midden sites. It's, it's one of the largest middens in the southern half of the country in this reserve. It's a powerful story to do this. Around this place. How can people? How can people help? Uh, is there any way uh, uh, people? Because this is some a place, well, you know. Well, look, what's happened from our perspective, Eddie, is people, uh, the public, land, the land managers, people like the Department of Environment, Land, Water, and Planning, who are responsible for the management of this place, our local Moonshire Council, have failed completely as land managers. And we've petitioned Lily D'Ambrosio, the Environment Minister, the State Environment Minister, 
And we just felt, why the community got frustrated is we just felt we were being bobbed off. Um, we weren't giving a fair go in the local press. We weren't taken seriously. And this is the silent majority. And we we went to Lily D'Ambrosio, and in fairness, she did, she did arrange a meeting next week. Um, but we just felt that no one was paying attention. The Minister for Racing, Martin Pakula, hmm. wouldn't step in. He said, oh, it's just a local issue. And, um, you know, we, we're a community. We should not have to solve these problems. There are regulations, Eddie, at a local and at a state and federal level that one protect the hooded plover and that protect this landscape. And those those land managers that the Environment Minister, the uh, Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning and the local council, they're charged with the responsibility to look after this landscape. And there are acts of power to protect it. So, so and, Shane, you reckon there should be pressure applied? Absolutely. And if people want to write to the Environment Minister and write to the Racing Minister, and Josh Frydenberg, as the Federal Minister, is actually the, the person responsible for the survival of the Little Hooded Plover. And there, there is an EPBC Act, the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, to protect that little bird. And it's his job. You know, and on their watch, Josh Frydenberg, Lily D'Ambrosio, on their watch, this bird is on on the, on the edge of local extinction. Mm. You know, like yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's actually uh, gobsmacking. Um, there's a uh, the uh, you've got a Facebook www.facebook.com forward slash Save Belfast Coastal Reserve. Yeah, and www.bcrag.org. Yeah, B-C-R-A-G. Yeah. Okay. Well, you keep us posted, posted and uh, this is uh, this is a very big fight that has to be won. There's no it, there's no two ways about it. Well, Annie, it's, it, look, it's a commercialisation of public land. It's a takeover of public land. It, it's it, it's our it's our, our public right to have that public land, and there should be commercial activity there. And um, you know, look, we want the Minister for Racing to step in and support the racing industry and build purpose-built facilities so everyone's got security. Well, that's a very interesting idea. There's, there's money in that as well. They don't have to well, foul everything up. Happens, it's what happens in Europe. Yeah. You know, this is, we're not in the 19th century, we're in the 20th century, 21st century. You know, um, we shouldn't be selling off or, you know, destroying public lands like this for commercial like Thanks for for speaking to us today, Shane. Thanks, Annie. Thanks for taking the time. No worries. Unemployed, underemployed, receiving Social Security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Three CRs turn 40, and from Monday, 10th of October, right through to Saturday, 19th of November, we're celebrating. 
Join us on 3CR Breakfast from 8 until 8.30am, Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich 3CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio. From September 11th to 13th in the year 2000, members of the World Economic Forum met at the Crown Casino Complex in Melbourne, Australia. During this time, Community Radio 3CR suspended normal programming to provide special broadcast of the massive public opposition to corporate-led globalisation. Here's a few excerpts from a compilation of 3CR's special S11 coverage. And I thought it was a bit symbolic that this meeting was taking place in a casino. It's about quarter past eight on this Monday, S11, September the 11th. It's pretty amazing, actually. I mean, that's something that many activists would have seen in Melbourne before. Well, good morning. Uh, it's exciting to have this chance to talk about where this marketplace is going. We've got what must be about 2,000 people in the space under the Kingsway Bridge. And I repeat, uncivilised. What the hell are they talking about in terms of what is the globalisation problem? We've got a bit of a sit-down happening because we've got a police, uh, a police car trying to get through. Oh, it has been a difficult day here in Melbourne, not just for the World Economic Forum. And good morning, you're listening to Monday Morning 3CR Breakfast with Andrew and Catherine. Um, today is the infamous S11 Day, uh, which is basically nothing more infamous than a big protest that's occurring um, with various different members all throughout the community um, protesting against the World Economic Forum meeting in oh, Crown Casino in the city. transnational business forum that will not speak its own name, that hides behind a euphemism like World Economic Forum. This body's agenda, it is not the decision-making body the WTO is, but this body's agenda is to shift the WTO and member states and politicians further down the neoliberal road. Well, the World Trade Organisation is made up of governments. It was formed about five years ago, uh, so it's a relatively new organisation. And in theory, um, the, it's supposed to be a, a voting organisation for governments where they come together and make agreements about international trade. But in reality, um, it is not a democratic organisation. Davos, high up in the Swiss Alps, is not the centre of a global capitalist conspiracy to divide up the world. Davos is where the global elite meets under the umbrella of the World Economic Forum to iron out a rough consensus on how to ideologically confront and diffuse challenges to the system. All the meetings are closed. Um, they're not uh, open to the media or, or to the public. Um, there are no um, non-government community organisation observers, uh, but business plays a very big role in lobbying these meetings, both attending because they have resources to attend um, and lobbying individual governments. The global structures 
that have been put in place under the name of globalization include the structural adjustment programs of the third world launched by the World Bank and IMF with the combination of liberalized imports, liberalized exports, change your logic from meeting your needs to selling luxury commodities for cheap and buying your basic needs for expensive on foreign exchange. It's about removing everything that people have gained through struggles over millennia, over centuries, rights to have security of work. It's all very glitzy and glamorous and affluent and everybody's stuffing themselves with sandwiches and so on. Because if you have a situation where your health, your transport, your education services, your tariff powers are all regulated by international treaties in a way that stops governments intervening in the economy or intervening to ensure that people get decent goods and services and decent health, welfare and education, then you have circumscribed the democratic political space at the parliamentary level, at the citizenship level and at the governmental level. This kind of idea of empty ecosystems, empty earths, empty life, empty agriculture, as long as it's not run by corporations, is the entire assumption of globalization, that there's nothing till the corporations enter. Unions are institutions that stand for fairness and justice. It is the mission, our mission, to ensure that a fair share for working people and their families is achieved. Yet even in this country, one of the richest countries in the world, we have increasing child poverty. More than 800,000 children live in poverty, and of the 100,000 added to that list since 1995, a quarter of them are children of working families. This emergence of a class of working poor in Australia is a shocking indictment of a corporate culture that denies working people a fair share. There's now wide recognition that it's these breakthroughs in technology that have driven productivity to new heights and really allowed the creation of jobs uh, without inflation and a lot of innovation uh, that is, is fantastic uh, for consumers. The big winner uh, for, from all this technology are the people who buy products, not just the people. The clearest, simplest thing people understand is the World Economic Forum is an opportunity for all these bosses to meet together and do these deals. And so, you know, the, the, the message is really simple for people to understand that they get together, they find who's offering the cheapest deal at the moment. Is Burma at four cents an hour or is it El Salvador at 13 cents? You know, what's the pros and cons of that? Um, that's what they're on about and we've got to be on about globalising campaigns to challenge them and bring them down. Today, uh, many thousands of workers coming off jobs, stopping work to come down and protest the fact that ordinary people are not being given a say in their future. So uh, it's just been a great week. If we in Australia can't stand up for the rights of workers, what hope for people in Indonesia and, and other countries where there isn't anything like the freedom to get out onto the streets that we've got here today? Yeah, the union movement's had to deal with the question of how it related to S11. 
in South Australia, the International Committee and the Trades and Labour Council generally thoroughly supported S11, the community groups. Other unions have been a bit more nervous because they weren't certain of the nature of some of the community groups and the, the issue of violence was, of course, a concern to a number of unions. So originally, some unions were staying a little bit separate, but, you know, looking around here today, there are MWU flags, CFMEU flags. We've got the Secretary of the TLC in South Australia, John Maitland from the CFMEU, rank-and-file top know, union officials around Australia are here today, which I think is incredibly important. So that debate and that discussion has been useful inside our own ranks. Well, Lee, I'm just looking at uh, an ACTU press release that's come out this morning where Sharon Burrow has said yeah. that um, those who were attempting to shut down the forum did not represent the voices of Australian citizens who were con- concerned about a decent future. Um, could you just, I guess... Give us trades halls and your your point of view um, on these sorts of comments in terms of the fact that, well, there will be a union rally that will be uh, marching on the South Bank today. We've made it very clear from the start that we're not not, uh, about blockading the banking. That's the matter for others, S11 and a whole range of groups, and that's, I suppose, partly why we're not part of S11. That we we are here to protest. We're just as on side with the issues and the concerns of people about globalisation. I mean, unions face them every day. Factories shutting down to go to low wage and uh, low environmental standard countries. We face them every day, but we um, have longer and broader campaigns than uh, to fight, and we we want to get those going rather than just simply shutting down one forum. I heard that um, there was people from the liquor trade union that were inside the building and uh, escorting people in and out. Um, you know, uh, what's the use of that? It defeats the whole purpose, really. Um, why are people camping there for three days in the real cold and the rain and whatever um, if people are going to be allowed to be escorted in and out? I thought that it was a blockade, uh, and that's what it ought to be, a bloody blockade. You're listening to 3CR's 40 Days of Radical Radio Special, celebrating 3CR's 40 fabulous years of community radio. You're listening to excerpts of 3CR's special S11 coverage of the massive protests at the World Economic Forum meeting in Melbourne in the year 2000. Unequal distribution of power and wealth in the world. We must recognise that. Cannot run away from that and talk about you know how we are, how the free traders and the free marketers are helping the poor. They're not helping the poor. They have made the poor more poor, and they have become rich and more rich in the process. There's one and a half times the amount of food in the world at the moment needed to feed everyone adequately. But it doesn't suit the interests of global capital because, of course, they want global free trade and food to send those commodities where they can gain the most profit. Food is the biggest industry in the world. It has the biggest impacts on our environment and it's now dominated by fewer than 20 giant mega corporations. Everything from the seed to the supermarket owned by those corporations and the concentration is increasing as we speak. And they're going to make a one world government for the people, not for the poor. I tell you now, babies, it won't be for the poor, it'll only be for the rich. And the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. They're getting us use of having no money and the money will crash. Do you realise that? They're getting us used to having no money. 
They don't admit that the world's finite and fragile. They'll not admit that the world's resources are limited and cannot endlessly, endlessly be pillaged for private gain. They can't admit either that there's no economy without nature. Basmati, this wonderful aromatic rice you buy in Indian stores, long-grained, smells beautiful. A company in Texas claimed last two years ago that it had invented Basmati. And not just invented it in seven days like God and Bible. They invented it instantly. Instant invention of a novel rice line. We need to very strongly, very powerfully, very clearly make it obvious and known to politicians and to the business community that we live in a community, not an economy, that the environment is the superstructure of all economic activity, that there are a series of environmental standards, that there are a series of community expectations and that there are a series of rights and obligations to both people and the planet that must come before the private pursuit of profit. We're here to make that clear and I think that's one of the challenges and it's also been one of the successes of the past few days. I heard a report yesterday, I think it was, that three men, Bill Gates, his second-in-command, and one other, have the combined, their combined wealth is the same wealth as 600 million people in the world. So three against 600 million. It's the obscenity of the whole thing. It's the obscenity of Crown Casino. Even today, the entire blame is laid on developing countries, on their corrupt leaders, on their economic mismanagement, on their petty civil wars, on their utter backwardness, on their lack of capability to modernize enough to catch up on time. You know, I became politically anti-McDonald later. I was anti-McDonald right from the beginning because of taste. <laughs> because it's some of the worst world that could, food that could ever be created in the world. And it is this new democracy that is pluralistic in which the local leads to change the global because it's the only way the global can change. In which all who have been on the margins unleash their creative forces to create new freedoms for all in an inclusive way. That's the kind of threshold at which we are. And we will not be criminalized. We will not be terrorized. We will not be afraid. We will just enjoy and have fun in this new freedom movement in which we all are. We've got environmentalists, we've got socialists, we've got feminists, we've got anarchists, we've got workers, we've got students, we've got women, we've got people from every different group imaginable and a whole range of people who never have really worked together like this in the past. And if we take anything out of this, we really need to take together this spirit of working together because we will not win this fight in one day. We won't even win it in three days and we certainly won't win it in one country. And what we need to do is stand up together and have international solidarity and fight this fight in all countries of the world with all its vulnerable and exploited people together. And it's no more an altruistic 
So, I mean, I had a conversation. A lot of people said, you know, Australia is a very comfortable society. There are a lot of people, you know, who are, you know, we're not poor. They are middle class. They have, they have their homes. They have their cars. They have their TVs, and they're very happy. They're comfortable. Why the hell do they need to get involved in all these issues? Well, if you don't, you will be the next victim. So don't, you don't have to fight for altruistic reasons anymore. It's for the fight of humanity and for your own humanity, for your own survival. So we don't have a choice as a civil society in the world but to fight and struggle. Hugh Morgan, Western Mining Company and all these people who are getting rich on uranium and exploitation of all Indigenous people's lands around Australia, you can forget that because we're going to keep going. We, this is our life. It is the corporation that has become obsolete. It is the corporation that serves as a fetter to humanity's movement to new and necessary social arrangements to achieve the most quintessentially human values of justice, equity, democracy, and to achieve a new equilibrium between our species and the rest of the planet. According to them, we're all way behind when the fact is we know we're looking into the future and know the reality of the corporate mindset. And create totally new institutions that do not have the baggage of illegitimacy, institutional failure, and Jurassic mindsets that attach to the IMF, WTO, and the World Bank. Indeed, I would contend that the focus of our efforts these days is not to try to reform the multilateral agencies, but to deepen the crisis of legitimacy of the whole system. I think a lot of people are going to need a, a, a lot of support and debriefing time now because I think a lot of people are quite shaken by what's happened, but I think that a lot of positive things will come out of it too. This structure is unsustainable, it is unfair, and it thrives on inequality and inequity in all its forms. This structure kills people slowly and daily people die many times in all societies and in all cultures to sustain it. Every day we rape the earth and every day we rape the poor to sustain the few pockets of riches that we have. Can we really understand this, make the connections and join the fight against this structure? Can we? I leave you with this question today. I'm sure Melbourne will be remembered for the message that we are not terrorists. Defending our fundamental rights guaranteed by our constitutions is not terrorism but the very foundation of democracy and we are not going to give it up. was produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne by Rachel Maher and Juliet Fox. We'd like to thank all those people who contributed material to this compilation and all those who added their voice to the protest. Three CRs turn 40, and from Monday, 10th of October, right through to Saturday, 19th of November, we're celebrating. Join us on Three CR Breakfast from 8 until 8:30 a.m. Monday to Saturday, as we delve into our rich Three CR archive and bring you half an hour of historic gems. So start your day with the sounds that built a station. 40 days of groundbreaking audio celebrating 3CR's 40 years of radical radio.
giving a voice to those who are marginalised in society, to Indigenous, to women, to community language programs, to left progressive perspectives, to unions, and 3CR is still that voice today. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity bricky team lister when re the smash the evil union's jackboots commission bill, we reported last week the sad, sad news that dear baby Jesus family fast Senator Bob Deity had to resign because of the greed and avarice and criminal behaviour of evil unions thinking their role is to represent workers, forcing his housing non-construction company to deconstruct. Well, good, good news. Bob has announced he won't resign until after he has voted for the Smash the Evil Union's Jackboots Commission. And I want people to know that as a building industry caring employer, well, former caring employer, I have no vested interest in smashing the evil unions other than that evil unions are evil. The dear baby Jesus hates them with Christian love. And I said on this segment just last week, I would do what I can for the thousands of families, home buyers, builders, contractors and their workers who have gone broke by giving their home loans to me or not being paid, do what I can by praying for them. It seems the Dear Baby Jesus Family Fast Party, so-called because many families have no choice but to fast thanks to Bob, will take till next year to decide on Bob's successor. Perhaps the problem is finding people to vote, finding if there's anyone in the Dear Baby Jesus Family Fast Party, and Bob said he wants to ensure it chooses the candidate of his choice. He really said that. I will choose the candidate and the popular vote will then endorse my choice. Uh, So you're a firm advocate of party democracy, Bob. Well, we practice what we preach, the dear baby Jesus family. The whole family, including the blessed mother in the kitchen and looking after the dear little children, has a say. And the man, democratically, as determined by the dear baby Jesus, makes the decision. And the one notion lot that repository of Mensa Intelligence says, why aren't we surprised? It will support the smashing the evil union's legislation because it's a matter of freedom. No, no, no idea either. But maybe if we lock up all evil unionists, all evil construction workers, they'll be free or we'll be free or we'll be free to lock up all workers or caring employers will be free or... Malcolm, if the workers are all free in jail, who will do the work? We asked Malcolm Roberts Workers, who is fast challenging that appalling hoonside in the Mensa Stakes. There's no such thing as climate change. It's a UN of the US of the UN of the world long-haired commie conspiracy. And that appalling Hoonsun says the massive budget deficit is down to paid parental leave. Yet, despite their thinking person solutions to the big issues, there are still long-haired, commie, greeny critics who reckon they're idiots. (laughs) Where would that come from? Why, Malcolm also said we need a fair and even industrial relations playing field so caring employers could better combat the evil of union bosses.
Now, we've mentioned several times there are good, good bosses, the caring employers and evil bosses, union bosses, union secretaries, and good on Malcolm for highlighting this disparity for... Well, caring employers, good, good bosses are always in danger of being fined millions, just like evil union, pejorative, pejorative bosses, showing the playing field is uneven and unfairly tilted in favour of the union bosses, who are the only ones lucky enough to be fined millions and threatened with jail. How do you feel about the unfair imbalance that means you too can't enjoy the pleasure of being fined millions? We ask caring employer good boss Rick Bloated. Fine, fine. Thanks, Rick. And as yet another construction worker didn't make it home from work this week, let's hope the union bosses and co-workers didn't do anything rash like hold up work over the incident or they'll be fined millions more for taking unprotected action over a worker being unprotected. As caring employers and big supremo Malcolm and the caring business class party and Bob and the dear baby Jesus and appalling and her Malcolm know, evil unions use safety concerns just to upset poor caring employers. But when industrial accidents happen, accidents, never murder, never manslaughter, never warranting the threat of landing in a prison cell for heinous crimes like raising safety issues, union bosses often show how criminal and corrupt and disruptive they are. But, but we did raise safety issues. And what happened? We got fined millions. And for goodness sake, the boardrooms always express their sympathy and promise a thorough investigation and assure us they will make sure this can never happen again, which always makes the family and friends to whom the worker never comes home again feel just so much better. We can but imagine how caring employers must feel when workers are killed or injured or come down with some debilitating, often terminal disease. On climate change, which isn't, the Minister for Energy and something else, what is it again? Uh, oh yes, saving the planet with fossils, Josh Fry dem Icebergs, will introduce legislation to prevent the anti-fossil Luddites access to the courts if they intend to use the law, a clear abuse of the legal system. These people are abusing the legal system by opposing, by delaying, by preventing jobs and development and investment, vexatious litigation. The environment protection legislation was never intended for this purpose. Ah, uh, yes, what was the intention? To protect caring employers, ensure all this employment, development and investment could proceed after proper, sensible consideration of environmental issues and concluding that any environmental impacts will be minimal. It is ludicrous, it is anti-True Blue Aussie to suggest the world's great resource corporations would undertake investment and development and generate jobs if they thought for one second their activities would affect the environment. They can't be blamed and we can't hold up great investment opportunities just because oh so occasionally accidents will happen. I say that in my capacity as energy supremo. And as the saving the world with fossil supremo, that's the prevent access to the courts if you're going to raise long-haired commie environment issues bit. 
Josh, if the litigation is vexatious, abusing the legal system, how come these long-haired commie Luddites have won cases based on the law? My point, that's the very reason we have to change the law, so they can't win. More so, so they can't have access to the law just in case we've left a loophole. Also a week when the State Socialist Minister for Corrections spent the week correcting himself in the From Obscurity to Notoriety Overnight Department, hands up anyone who had heard of Steve, he bets on the dogs until the past couple of days, correcting himself. As it turns out, Steve is our state number one screw, the top screw and perhaps even the top dog. And isn't the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin screwing him, tightening that? It gave her something to do. He opened the defence before a grovelling, I'm so busy screwing the working class we've locked up. It must be so difficult running the private prison system. Poor Steve. So difficult he's been through three drivers in the past little bit. One left because he kept yelling at her. She left just because I yelled at her. He seemed stunned. Well, raised my voice at her, which he assumed was what socialists who get a little bit of power over others and take themselves very seriously did as a matter of course. Of course, he nodded. Although Lord Rupert knows Steve's biggest crime is he is a minister in the socialist government, the pejorative Dan. The four to five days a week Lord Rupert a whopping campaign to punish Victorians for voting the wrong way, getting it wrong. Incessant screaming P1 headlines continued in inside spreads and we were left to contemplate how come a story about a caring business class minister lying to Parliament didn't make P1 screaming headlines? Covered, if covered at all, in single column left hand back of the book pages. No, Malcolm backs his lying minister screaming at us. Imagine if they found a lying pejorative Dan minister had lied to Parliament. What odds the first 12 or more screaming pages? Not that we want to let the erstwhile unknown he bets on the dogs off the hook or off the leash in this case. I did think of cracking the worst joke of the week, that the woman he raised his voice at was to blame for misunderstanding what he yelled at her because the code name for his chauffeured limousine was K9, but we wouldn't crack so obvious a bad joke. Indeed, on the insignificant little matter of a caring business class minister lying to Parliament, the now former number two lawman, known this week as Just Out, praised by Malcolm and the team as doing the Honourable thing. It is obvious Attorney General George Brandy's brain did not mislead Parliament. It says so in his written opinion. It is obvious he consulted with then just in, now just out. He just didn't mention the relevant matter. Honourable, with the appropriate qualification, they qualified. A qualification? Well, we are talking about lawyers. Thought we might seek George and Just Out's respective written opinions on Honourable, but finally realised we couldn't afford it. So are they all, all Honourable men. Mark Antony described the assassins as he whipped up the crowd to take to the streets against them. And in that context, we agree. George Brandy's brain is an Honourable man. So are they all. Good morning. Uh. 
You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. G'day, Humphrey. How are you? Oh, where else could you be? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. George Brendis, the Honourable Man. Yes, indeed. Oh, well, we're here today in one sense to honour those Australians who fought and defeated the plan to have conscription for overseas service 100 years ago yesterday. That's right. So, but um, and you, you say know. that that's one of, um, in fact, you said the two defeats of conscription for overseas service alongside the defeat of the anti-red bill in 1951 are the three most significant events in the history of European Australia in the 20th century. They have to be. Yeah, go they for it. They have to be. And when come the revolution, yeah. there'll be public holidays. That's right. They'll get rid of Anzac Day, the Queen's birthday and Christmas Day. Mm. So that's what we have to look forward to, among many other things. But the struggle to defeat conscription and, of course, the struggle to build socialism, um, there's a bit of a difference between them. But it's principally that that I want to talk about this morning and not... I don't want to go over the history of the anti-conscription. I love your term, but, monopoly of violence. Well, it's not my term, unfortunately. I would love to have coined it, but I'm afraid it is part of the old Marxist uh, real tradition of, uh, of how we look at it. But that's what we have to break. And that's where conscription really came in. Because, I mean, we all have. And when I started, because I've got to give a paper at a conference this afternoon uh, about the, you know, the Labor History Society here, and I think in many places in Australia, are having um, well, comparable events around the place to talk about what happened 100 years ago. And I started to write this, and I began to think, you know, things come together in your head, and I thought, I've been saying for you know a long, long time that conscript, the defeat of conscription was a very good thing. And indeed, in Australia at the time, I would continue to say that. But if you think about... Because, what you know, it's, it's, it's showing the bird to the uh, power elites, effectively. And, well, it, it, I think it did more than that. And this is something that we really have to think about, given the current state of the working class. What a boost it was to our confidence. Yep. Um, and we go back even to the uh, Vietnam War. I mean, <laughs> we opponents thought we were having no effect at all. We now know that... Um, the American regime was terrified of the <laughs> anti-war protesters. You know, we were frightening them, but away we had no idea. So that, so that the defeat was an enormous psychological boost that the strength of the working class, in part, is that psychological confidence. Um, and equally, um, on the other side, if they've had a, you know, a big defeat like this, they have to pull their head in a bit and think, well, what can we get away with? How are we going to get away with it um, on, a, on a future occasion? But you uh, do ask the question, why, uh, in what way does conscription for war differ from the imposition of freed labour as wage slavery in the production of surplus value? That's one of the things that I thought, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't got my head quite around to that before I started to write this paper. And I thought that's one of the questions we have to begin to ask ourselves and to come up with an answer that means we have to understand how the capitalist system truly operates. Now, in the pure model, uh, you know, that Marx puts forward, the, the compulsion to work in the capitalist system is entirely economic. 
that because of the historical origins of capitalism, our forebears were stripped, freed, as Marx said, of the capacity to keep ourselves, that um, the, the land and the soil and other things were taken away from people. So people were now freed, compelled to sell the one thing that we had remaining to us, which is our labour power and our capacity to add any uh, real value to the wealth of the that is provided for all of us by the natural world. Now, And clunk, that, the chains go on. Well, indeed, that is what happens. And we can look at that a bit further in a second about how the way in which controls operate in the two... Um, in, uh, if, you know, if you're in the army or if you're in a... If you're just an ordinary capitalist workplace. But what is the big difference is that, on the one hand, as I said, you are free, compelled to sell your labour power. Uh, That's a purely economic uh, control. In conscription, of course, you're conscripted there, the state immediately intervenes to make that happen. So that's one real uh, way of distinguishing the two things. The big thing that happens, of course, is that once you are conscripted, if what you're conscripted to do is to go off and you know, well, prepare for a war or to fight in a war, when you're doing that, you are not adding value. You are using up value that's produced somewhere else in the capitalist system. Um, now, of course, what you can be used for is to get your hands on more of the wealth of nature. You can be sent off to conquer somewhere else. Um, and then, you, you know, you get the raw materials and then you've got, the, you know, the capitalists have got control of the areas into which they can sell the products. Well, that was, you know, the Vikings did that every year, didn't they? Well, but the very big difference between plunder, because what they were plundering was something that someone else had added the value to. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, this is not the same as the capitalist system. Um, that, you know, that, that even when you go off to war now, and, you know, I mean, if you seize the oil in the Middle East or something, you've got hold of it as a natural resource, but you've still got to make people work on it for it to be any real value to you, to be able to sell it and to make a profit and then to accumulate even more capital out of that. So they're... There are a couple of the ways. The third thing, of course, is what about the way in which when you are at work or you are in the army, the controls that are imposed on you are quite, you know, they aren't exactly the same. But what we know is a lot of interchange has taken place. Uh, Marx says in Capital that the foreman is the NCO of the capitalist system. Mm. And in the 150 years since then, all kinds of ways in which the control systems, uh, the use of people in small teams, all of these things have moved back and forth between the, um, the sort of factory system or the office um, or indeed into the sporting field um, when soldiers came but back they're, from the they're, war. It's all very... That was my theory. You know, after the uh, wars, uh, they militarised the entire uh, society. Well, I mean, mean, if you militarise the entire society to go off to war, then when that's over... That's right. It doesn't just go away. No. You know, it it permeates into... 
And you've got this really interesting thing where you say uh, about uh, how the uh, capitalist system creates, uh, normalises, you know, uh, normalises your, I can't find it here, where you... um, you know the the big uh, backlash against voting no for conscription, for example, was uh, where that the capitalist society actually uh, normalises compuls- uh, compliance. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Well, took I mean, time I mean, to get that out. Has to do all the time. I mean, sometimes. Yeah, every ruling class raises violence to an obligatory norm. Norm. Well, all I needed that, to do was turn the page. That is Rosa Luxemburg. That's fantastic. When I read what that a woman. When, I was about, when I was about 19, it changed my life. Yeah. It was, you know, the scales fell off. I thought, that's how the world works. That's you right. Know? You, know, I, you know, everything was different thereafter. So I quote that, you know, on, on any possible occasion I can to make the point across. And, you know, and it's not only people on the left like Rosa Luxemburg. And here as well I quote Mr Adam Smith. Yeah. Who says? And oh, that socialist Adam Smith. <laughs> In every case, the law operates as a combination of the rich to oppress the poor and preserve to themselves the inequality of the wealth of the world. And that's Adam Smith. And then he goes on to say, if you challenge that, what happens? The masters, he says, never cease to call aloud for the assistance of the civil magistrate and the rigorous execution of those laws which have been enacted with so much severity against the combinations of servants, labourers and journeymen and, one might say, the CFMEU. No, I was going to say, that's exactly what's going on at that's the moment. That's exactly what it is. And yeah, then calling up other, the cops every time you know, the uh, uh, union comes and does its proper job. Yep, yeah. and quote again, there's Mr Max Weber, who's normally quoted as the kind of great... Um, uh, opponent of a Marxist view of the world. What does Max Weber say? The industrialists take into account the fact that people exist who are hungry. <laughs> and that those other people in the spiked helmets will prevent the poor using physical force simply to take the means where they find them. Mm. Uh, um, you know, I mean, this is how... All class systems have to operate. Um, there is no no surprise in there at all. Now, how do you deal with this? And this is what I was getting around to saying before. This year, we've got the 100th anniversary of the defeat of the conscription referendum. Next year, we've got the, you know, closer to the end of the year, there is the second defeat. But in the interim, of course, there's the Bolshevik Revolution. <laughs> yes, of course. And you have to say very simply... No conscription, no Bolshevik revolution. Because what did the Tsars do? Mm -hmm. They deprived themselves of the monopoly of violence. They had to arm the peasants and the workers to go and fight the German enemy. (gasps) Of course, they gave them their arms. But, you know, now, this is, you know, nothing inevitable about this. If the Tsarist army had been victorious, a different story would have come out. But, of course, it wasn't going to be victorious. All the things that were rotten in the system meant they couldn't keep up supplies to their own forces and they are defeated. You know, people, you know, the Russian soldiers just ceased to fight. You know, I mean, long before the revolution happened. But they still had their guns. 
and they had the military training. Yeah, so what do you do with that? As 1917 grew on, they had the capacity, and the Bolsheviks and the other revolutionaries could organise it. But if it hadn't been for the war, the peasants would have been as angry, the workers would have been as angry, but they wouldn't have had the guns. You know, that's really interesting because uh, that's what happened in Bougainville as well. But, you know, uh, they the fellow who w- 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 read that uh, was the armed... A strategist for the uh, the Bougainvillians against the uh, corporation in mm. that island. He'd been trained by the uh, uh, PNG uh, army. He yeah. just and I re- I did heard an interview. I was transcribing an interview that he gave, where he he you know I I just had to stand up for my people. Yeah, well, I mean it happens elsewhere. I mean I mean you're giving you know some big examples. After the anti-fascist war, that's what happened in Yugoslavia mm. with the resistance forces. It happened in China. It happened in half of Korea. Happened throughout Vietnam. That the anti-Japanese. Oh, and it war, happened in the Black Panther movement. Well, I was going to get round to them. Oh, sorry. Full circle. You know, so that was happening there. And if you think of what was the difference, yeah, you know, the many differences, but one key difference between why Chavez could survive a CIA-backed coup in 2002... That's right. ...and I end they couldn't... Yeah, he was, into, he was a military there man. there was enough support within the uh, armed forces supporting the um, um, popular forces around the Chavez. Um, and that hadn't been there... Well, I mean... You know, we don't want to get into the complications of all of this because there are many layers of these things, but that is a major distinction between the two. And what happened, we're talking about poor old President Nixon being alarmed at the anti-war movement. The slogan that some of us will remember, of course, from 50 years ago is, bring the war home. Ah, uh, yes. And that meant you brought the armed struggle back to the streets of the United States. And the Black Panthers, I mean, I've just seen a series of documentaries about the Black Panthers. And I mean, I'd forgotten. They're all carrying little red books. And the thing they say over and over again is political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. <laughs> and that's what they were setting out to do. Yeah, they didn't have the arms, you know. And you know, if you see them, you know, lining up to fight, you know, they really are not armed to take on the, you know, the armed force of the state that was that was going to be turned out against them. But they did but have the they, theory. But well, and in what they did by organising the community, a bit like the Black Lives Matter campaign at the moment they could hold the police back in some ways. Whereas the police, if they just went in and you know picked people off at random, individually, then they had no defence. But when they knew there were these squads of people who could come out and support them, that, you know, even though there, weren't, you know, there wasn't really armed struggle in that, in that kind of way, they, they, they certainly recognised that as an important part of, of what they were going to have to do. If we um, go back to the conscription um, uh, issue, the no yeah. vote for conscription, that is all about this uh, having, you know, putting your no- nose up uh, to the monopoly of violence that uh, the capitalist system or the bourgeois clique requires in order to maintain power. And there were groups in Australia, not just the IWW. 
there were other groups here who set up a thing called the Labor Volunteer Defence Army. Mm. And it was, you know, in theory, though they didn't have weapons either, this was going to be a defence army of where the workers would struggle, not just in an industrial sense, but politically and perhaps even in an armed struggle sense, against the encroaching power of the state. Um, you know, in the big mining towns of Broken Hill, for example, you know, there was this, you know, this thing called the, the Labor Volunteer Defence Army and they would parade and they would march. Um, and we'd seen this, of course, you know, earlier, 25 years before, with the Shearers camps out at Buckholden, where they did have arms. Um, and this, you know, this question arose around the Labor movement in the world as to what kind of military system was least threatening to working people. And some people would say, well, the worst example, of course, is where you have a permanent regular army. So what we've got to do is to get a volunteer army because they'll come out of the people. Well, everywhere you look, where that has happened, because of the military training, these volunteers, in the main, end up on the side of the boss class. They are converted. They are trained. They were, you know, there are examples. Well, they're the lapdogs. Yeah, the lapdogs of the ruling class, basically. Yeah, you know, I mean, that, there's something in it for them. Well, I mean, it's also what you were made to do. You know, the the basic rule of historical materialism is we become what we do. Yeah, so that's if you've true. Got seven years of military training. Yeah. That's what you become. Now there are examples around the world uh, of. When poor peasant boys are recruited into the army, they have been known in many countries to take an opportunity to revolt against this and to kind of lead some sort of real opposition to yeah, the way in which the army is used. We'll cu- we have to come to the end of this. I but, know, um, we do. Yeah, I, I've just recently been reading a very interesting book called The Feast of the Goat, and it's a... Um, uh, a look at uh, Dominican Republic and the uh, oh, yeah. yeah and the uh, tr- Trujillo oh, yeah. dictatorship and it's fascinating when you say that thing about you are what you do uh, because it's uh, dissects a dictatorship effectively yep. and the yep. com- uh, compliance of the population. Yep. Uh, can I just give you my last little story about yeah. 1966? Yeah, go for there? it. I was at an anti-conscription meeting. And the union official got up and said, I'm in favour of conscription. And we were all shocked. And he said, yes, he said, we'll nationalise the oil industry and we'll we'll conscript all the young liberals to defend us when the Marines land. (laughs) It sounded like a good idea, but we recognised, of course, that you'd have to follow them into battle with submachine guns. (laughs) Otherwise, they'd defect to the class enemy. (laughs) But it's still not a bad idea, is it? No, not a bad idea at all. <laughs> okay, all right. Lovely to talk to you, Annie. Yeah, you too, Humphrey. Have a good all day. Right. Good, good, and you. Bye bye. And that was uh, Humphrey McQueen, academic. He's going off to in Canberra to a lovely day, no doubt, and we are too.
who have we had on the program today? It's been, as I said, an action-packed program today. We uh, went to the Peter Norman uh, Day celebration, a celebration of human rights uh, on the 9th of October down at Human Rights Square in the city of Melbourne. We went on and talked to uh, Shane Howard down at uh, near Kalani Beach, which is being inundated with hundreds of uh, racehorses as they, uh, as their owners wish to uh, get them beefed up and ready for winning Melbourne Cups and uh, the locals are pretty uh, upset as well as the hooded plover which is uh, being decimated. Uh, Action must be taken to uh, deal with this problem of environmental vandalism Uh, and uh, we then went to uh, S11 we went back to 2000, year 2000, outside the World Trade Centre here in Melbourne and the phenomenal demonstrations that went on, which 16 years later realised that the they set the tone for what the real questions are for a future community that can uh, actually sustain itself. And uh, we finished off with, uh, we had this is the week that was, and we finished off with uh, Humphrey, who is always a delight. Coming up next is... Uh, Asia-Pacific Currents. We'll go out with a, uh, a uh, track that will jar you into alertness. I am Troy Davis. This is Troy Anthony Davis. I've been sitting on George's death row for a crime I did not commit. I will never take another human being's life. And this killer is still out there. My family's in mourning. The victim's family's in mourning. And the truth is still locked in because I didn't get justice. Does the court system employ racists? Then why are so many black boys in cages? Why shouldn't I be paranoid of hatred? Just look at the curious case of Troy Davis. Let's travel on down to Savannah. In the state of Georgia, just south of Atlanta. Where they wave a rubber flag like a bandana. Hunger ancestors then pose for the cameras. A white police officer was shot and killed. Over an argument, he tried to stop and heal. But here's where the plot is real. The main suspect blamed Troy, went to the cops and squealed. And with no physical evidence or weapon. Troy was arrested for a 187 He said he was an innocent man when he was questioned But they said he did it, who needs a damn confession? They just need a witness, they can press the cry Tell him what to say or they'll arrest the guy Then put him on the stand and make him testify Swear to God to tell the truth and do their best to lie And they did so Troy was found guilty Sent the death row by a scheme so filthy even though it's in a sense it's true, we pray they don't reminisce over you, my God. Almost all of the prosecution's star witnesses have changed their stories. Some saying police pressured them to say Troy Davis did. Daryl Collins is one of the prosecution witnesses who signed a police statement implicating Troy Davis. And I told them over and over that this is, I didn't see this happen. They put what they wanted to put in that statement. But the truth always comes to light, and Troy Davis didn't give up the fight. He kept filing the bill until it was revealed. The state of Georgia wants an innocent man killed. That's why who's who on the mountain. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.